Hello and welcome to Climate Avengers. My name is Alina Folks, your guide and host as we discover how founders and investors are moving the needle on climate change. I'm talking with individuals who are proving that people and planet are compatible with scalable, investable businesses. I know what that means firsthand. My entire career has been in climate, and I've been through a traditional Fortune 200 company, and I've founded a climate tech company, Utility API. I raise capital for it from angels and venture firms, as well as non-dilutive capital. I also worked with Tesla and scaled operations globally. Elon told me good job. Now, I show people how to make money and save the world at the same time. Over the past couple of years, I've been digging into investing in this space and exploring opportunities to deploy capital and invest capital and make that capital grow and also save the planet. And these are the stories that need to be told because it is possible that you can do both. You can make money and save the world at the same time. So you know, by listening here, you are now a Climate Avenger. Avenge the climate with us. Welcome in. Today we have Paul Straub, Managing Director of Wireframe Ventures, in today to talk about his fund and everything about climate tech investing. Welcome in, Paul. Hi, Elena. Thanks for inviting me to join you. Yeah, it's great to connect on here. We have known each other in the climate tech space for for years now, and I'm excited to capture your thoughts on this industry and what you and your fund are up to these days. I'm ready for for whatever you've got uh, to throw my way. So yeah, let's let's jump in. Fantastic. Well, with this podcast, our goal is to get more traditional tech angels and traditional tech funds interested in climate tech and ideally to join the Climate Avengers Syndicate. So I would love to know what would you tell a traditional tech angel or investor so that they would feel comfortable getting involved investing in this space? Yeah, I think as an investor, if you kind of zoom out and, and, and you know, apart from climate, you're, you're always looking for that intersection of incredibly talented people who are capitalizing on some significant change that's taking place in markets. So an opportunity that's being opened up either because of market forces and tailwinds or because of new technologies. And that draws talent who sees an opportunity to build great businesses. And I think what we see in climate is you actually have this intersection of a incredibly urgent market need. You have a range of really compelling new technologies that some of which are, are quite mature and starting to, to become fairly common and some of which are still fairly early, but you have this really dynamic space where technology is having an impact on markets. And then at the same time, I think you're seeing a huge flood of people who have incredible skills in company building who all of a sudden are deciding that the most important thing and most interesting thing they can, can devote their careers to is, in fact, climate. So I think when we look at all of that, it, it means that I think there's some phenomenal opportunities to build great businesses. And if you're thinking about investing in climate, that is the first thing that I would point out. The other, only other thing that we can get into this that I would point out is that I actually think of investing in climate more as a theme than what some people might describe as a space. So for me, climate is... Anything that spans the decarbonization of the global economy, the adaptation that we will need to do to a changing climate, and removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Absolutely. Tell me more about that 
Like, why do you like to make that distinction between theme and sector? So I think about a sector, you know, traditionally, it's sort of like you could imagine a sector being the retail sector or the transportation sector Mm. or the food and beverage sector. Those, in my mind, are are sectors or industries that get, you know, SIC codes associated with, you know, what industry or sector you're in. But I think when you start to unpack what climate or climate innovation or climate tech actually is trying to get at, there's many different tools that can be applied in different markets in different sectors. And and we're interested in all of that. And that's why I think about it as a theme rather than a a, a specific sector or vertical, you know, industry. So it really speaks to more how big the market is for anything related to decarbonization, because it, it includes so many different sectors and so many aspects of like individual lives and also basically all businesses. I think that's absolutely right. It is the, one of the largest transformations at a global level you could possibly imagine. At that point, it seems like if you're not investing in climate, you're missing out on that massive transformation that's happening right now. It's like, how could you not invest in the sector? But I might be biased. I, I, I'm with you. <laughs> I couldn't imagine not, not focusing here. And, and I think it, it's sort of like, you know, I, when I took my first job in, in, in the nineties, there was this period where we talked about the internet economy and everything, you know, was, was the internet a sector. And I think what we all quickly realized was the internet is integrated into nearly every business and every consumer experience. And I think that over time, you know, what we're talking about is a massive transition driven by the urgency of addressing climate change. But over time, this and the technologies that, 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 that are built to address that will simply be integrated into the global economy. And so I think over time, you know, being smart about how you make investments, being smart about how you do business will always need to have this climate lens associated with them over, over the long, the long horizon. But I think for the next, you know, for, for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, we're still in this midst of transition where there's going to be a, a lot of specialization and sort of, a, you know, I, I think a, a maybe a different lens required. Mm-hmm. I really like how you compare it to the Internet. I don't think I've heard that one before. So investing in climate tech now is like investing in the Internet in the 90s. I don't think you can stretch the analogy too far. I think okay. there's, what, I, what I meant to say yeah. is that I think that I think that the, the, in, the, in the sense that the Internet simply became interwoven and integrated to and a foundation of, of society, whether it's a, you know, as a business or consumer, I think that the technologies that enable us to address climate change will simply become integrated into every business and the way that businesses operate and the way that consumers live their lives. And so that's something which is a, I think, a longer trajectory. And then, for example, the speed at which the internet has evolved. But I think it's, in a sense, the notion that, that something is a distinct climate you know, kind of space separate from the rest of the economy is, I think, a very short-sighted way to kind of look at what what climate investing and the opportunity around climate actually represents. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's just approaching it or saying in a few different type of ways is almost uh, it's investing in climate is investing in the economy of the future because it's going to be integrated in seamlessly, just like how the internet is seamlessly integrated in with everything. And it's integrating into more things, you know, still expanding beyond IoT. You know, 10 years ago, that was the three letters and now it's AI. 
Um, it's another wave that is happening and it makes sense to be a part of it. Yeah, I think that's well said. And and I think, you know, you can even look just as an example, you think about renewables as, as, as you know, a, a representation of what you just said. And a decade ago or more, you know, when, when I was starting to, to really focus on, on climate investing, renewables were this sort of discrete sector. They still are to some extent, but, but what you've seen, for example, over the past decade, even the past five years is that the cost of renewables is now, it is now lower than conventional generation. And so as, for example, you're looking at new generation additions in the U.S., they're dominated by solar. You know, this year, if you look at procurement of energy, if you're, if you're a business and you're looking at procuring energy, you no longer are just thinking about, Hey, you know, how do I buy my kind of sleeve of renewable energy? You're actually looking at just procuring energy. And it so happens that the most cost competitive form of, of energy for, for you is, is likely a renewable based source. Mm-hmm. And given your tenure in the industry, in terms of the episodes we've already had, I've only spoken with a newer fund manager in the climate tech space, more from traditional tech. That's Tommy Leap. We spoke and you, know, you have so many years of experience in this sector. I'd love to hear or for you to share some of those stories about, well, first, give us that scope, how long you've been investing in the space. And then I'd love to hear some of those home runs you hit or even triples let's say, to hear <laughs> about those that growth and returns, because we can talk about renewables being cheaper than anything else now, but it, that wasn't all the, always the case. And part of the investments that you made and the industry made 15 years ago have come to fruition and have headed out of the park. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, so personally, I've been investing in clean tech slash now, now it's called climate for the past 17 years. So in starting in 2006, I joined my predecessor firm, which was really a geographically focused fund and had the opportunity to dive into an open space that I was personally passionate about, which was the intersection of technology with, with the environment and with, with climate change. And so through that, built the, the clean tech practice at that fund. And certainly rode that first wave, you know, up and down and had my fair uh, share of scars and, and some successes along the way, some of which are still, I think, unfolding and, and I'm excited to talk about. But, you know, I think what we saw then was a much narrower focus than the definition of climate that we just talked about. I think so much investment was made in, around renewable solar, new materials and solar, obviously biofuels was a space that received a lot of investment that did not work out so well for most. And yeah, and then built environment, energy efficiency, those are some of the most invested areas of, of I would say the first generation of, of 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 clean tech. And after the bubble burst, like, you know, most people left the 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 space. When we started wireframe in 2016, it was about the same time that some of my colleagues, you know, we were all kind of getting together and talking about what came next. And, 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 and I'm thrilled that many of us have gone on to kind of create new platforms because in that period, no one really wanted to talk about energy or, or, or climate. You know, you, you wouldn't have much of a reception talking to LPs, trying to raise a fund to do that. And you didn't see a lot of entrepreneurial interest in that. And I think that's all shifted over the past five years. And, and I'm thrilled about that. 
But you know, the, the one thing I'll say is some of these stories take time to build. And if you look back at some of the big successes from you know a decade ago, some of them, like I'll just say, you know, like like even Tesla, which everyone cites, but companies like Enphase went through some real peaks and valleys to get to where they are today. And others, I think, are still stories that are that are you know that are emerging. And you know, an example of that personally would be a company like Trove, which is powering resale for the world's largest brands. So Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, folks like Lululemon, Allbirds, you know, Arcteryx all run their resale programs through. Trove. And I led the seed round in that company in 2013, and it has taken time to build that business. But I think it's a business that today is starting to, to, to really achieve some scale. And I think that, you know, it's, it's aligned well with also what's happening with consumer interest and, and with, you know, brands recognizing this opportunity. So I think that one of the headlines and takeaways for me from that first generation is that you know, success isn't always a straight line. And some of these stories really take time to to evolve. Absolutely. And it's almost the evolution of some of the technologies out there as well. Like with with Trove as an example, there's so much interest and there are a lot of companies or there's a lot of companies that are in that retail space are thinking about second life of garments or resale of garments, you know, everything from the real real to rent the runway. We see that more mass market, but with a focus more on the environmental side with with Trove. It's almost about that sea change of consumers and meeting with the technologies as well. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, something like, and we can dive into resale for, for, for just a minute. I think what's interesting about that category is that brands are recognizing that actually having a relationship with your customers that allows them, you know, the opportunity to kind of bring back their use item gives you another chance to bring those folks into store, gives you a chance to retain them as they make their next purchases. It keeps your items in circulation, allows you to actually then resell those items, perhaps to a generation of consumers or a set of consumers who haven't previously had experience with your brand. So it's both a retention mechanism as well as a way of actually growing your, your set of customers. And it actually has a meaningful CO2 impact because it is far less intensive to resale an, an item than it is to, to, to go and, 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 and produce a new one. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it's very appealing. You know, plus you get to earn margin on the item for a second and third time as it flows through, right. you know, your, your, um, you know, your, your system. So it's, it's also, it's, it, I think it's a really interesting dynamic when you sort of start to unlock and figure out how some of these pieces can come together in a way that really benefits, you know, a brand really benefits consumers and also benefits the, the environment. Absolutely. I was just in a store the other day and I saw a QR code on a tag of a piece of clothing. And now that makes so much more sense if companies are scanning in inventory multiple times, post-consumer multiple times. That just makes a lot more sense than like a, a code on the back of a, on a tag on a, on a garment, just connecting a few lines there. I have an Arcteryx dress where I would love to have for the rest of my life. And if I have to get it secondhand on Trove multiple <laughs> times, I will literally pay a premium. I know how great it is. You know what I mean? That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> oh, I am with you. I, I have the same thing. I have, I have a few items of clothing from Patagonia and I actually just went through this process. I've got 
And I've got a worn wear backpack that I've had for six years, which is amazing. But at this point on its second use, I've been using it for six years and I think I need to find a new one <laughs> and I love it. And it is not available in Nukes or Patagonia anymore. Oh. So I will, I will be going to, to Warnware to, to see if I can get my next, my next one. Absolutely. And, and I think consumers are, are ready to do that. Like more consumers are ready to do that. It's like, what you want to take my Arcteryx dress back? No, give me more of them. And, you know, it'll be interesting feedback loop for the brands as well, which ones need to be produced on a more consistent basis instead of a new design every spring type of thing. Yep. So that's really interesting. Coming back to, to traditional tech and investors, are you ending up investing or co-investing or do you end up leading rounds with traditional tech companies that are now interested in this space? Absolutely. And, and, and we're thrilled to see so much interest. In, and, and frankly, it's a, it's a far healthier kind of capital stack than it was, you know, a decade ago. And so we look at, you know, we are typically leading pre-seed and seed rounds. So Wireframe Ventures is a pre-seed and seed stage investor. That's where we like to, to start the relationship. And we are always syndicating, even if we're you know, leading a seed round, we're typically bringing in other groups. Who those groups are is something that's a conversation with the founders, and it really depends on what the right mix is. We have absolutely invested with a lot of our peers who are purely kind of focused on, you know, on, on the same theme and climate. We've also enjoyed having investors that are more generalist tech investors and and frankly, there are some some CVCs that that we worked with on on a repeated basis. And so, could you define CVC there? Oh, sure, corporate venture firms. So, folks who are operating a venture group within a corporation. There's a broad range of of these of these groups, but obviously, there's some well known ones like like Google and and Amazon, which have which have teams that are making investments. There's also Groups like like Munich Re that has a venture arm uh, that's been pretty active, and, and we've enjoyed working with on a few different companies. Hmm. Gotcha. And can you kind of talk about some of those conversations when you do have a more traditional tech firm that's co-investing with you guys, or is joining your syndication, or joining around? What types of questions are you getting from them? So usually, if we're leaving around, we can introduce founders to those groups if they haven't already met them. But oftentimes, those groups are also making their own independent decision on whether or not to invest. And so they're, they're actually speaking with you know, the founder most of the time mm-hmm. and, and, and doing their own work. And then we can support them. You know, if we've led the diligence effort, uh, we're happy to share our work with them to help them get up to speed. But you know, typically, we're pulling in people who are really relevant for the opportunity. So usually, they know the space you know, the market that, that the, the company is going to be operating in fairly well. So it's more about alignment with the vertical then or the sector once you are working with a specific company. Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, you're trying to, to work with a founder to build the right mix of people around the business. And at the stage we're investing, you know, most of the time, you know, we actually are working with other angels or seed investors for that first round. And so, what I'm describing is typically what happens as you get a little bit farther along towards a series A. And one of the roles that we play is, is working with founders to understand actually from the very start of the relationship, what is going to be expected when you get to a series A and being able to have a conversation that aligns 
all of us with where we think we need to be before the business is ready to raise more money. And then when you get to that point, it's a conversation about who would be the right fit as an investor and helping bring those people around the table into a process for, for, for that next round. And so that's where we would say, Hey, we think, you know, here are some groups that may, may have a strategic dimension to them that could be worth, could be worth speaking with. Sometimes those groups don't make sense to bring in until later. And sometimes, you know, we, we just have purely financial investors for, for quite some time, which is great too. But I think that's always the, like the conversation that we're having when we're starting to raise a series A is who, who's the right set of follow on investors. And oftentimes it really is, and this is sort of a repeated theme, but it, it is more about the partner or, you know, the people that you want to bring around your company as opposed to the name of a firm. So it's us having a point of view on and founders having a point of view on, you know, who is the individual that they want on their board for the next mm. couple of rounds that has the right sort of complementary fit with the rest of the group, but also is the right fit for that, for that team. And so that's all part of that conversation that, you know, that I think has to go into a thoughtful you know, follow on fundraise. That makes sense. And I really enjoy hearing about the the value add that you and Wireframe are providing to founders. Can you talk more about that, that experience for founders when they do work with you? We are investing in this at a point where usually there's no revenue and oftentimes there's no product. And we will invest in founders that have already built companies in the past and some, many, actually the majority that, that have not and are first time founders, mm. which is to say that what people need varies widely. And we think of ourselves as an extension of the team. And so the, the way that we like to start a relationship is that after we invest, you know, every couple of weeks, we, we set up a check-in with the founders. It's not something that is a reporting session. It is a chance to just build an ongoing dialogue and conversation with them about what we're learning, right? It's, 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 Hey, what's, what's going well, what's more importantly, not going well, that perhaps we can offer some perspective on, can be a sounding board on, can open up our network to, to help them with. And so we have these sessions, at least for the first several months, just as a way of really calibrating together, Hey, where can you know, this relationship add value to the company? It's the founder's agenda. It's their time. We, we want to make sure that they get value from it. And, and so what that can mean is a range of things. In some cases, it's helping them think about the profile of who they need to recruit into the company and helping them, you know, hire those first few people. Sometimes that's a technical role. We've, you know, helped recruit chief science officers and chief, chief technology officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've helped recruit folks who are for technical founders, more commercially oriented that can help them kind of round out. The, the first few key roles. We've helped them with introductions to people who could be customers or even just could be, you know, could be partners that are part of the market discovery process early on. What actually, you know, happens in the relationship with founders is that we're listening to what they're saying they need. And then we're as a team, by the way, we, we take sort of a team approach. We take a boutique, you know, approach a wireframe where each of us has a different network, has a different mm. set of experiences. And, and so we're then trying to figure out, Hey, are there, are there ways that we can, you know, bring resources to bear for that, for that founder that helps them improve the chances of success and getting to the A? And, uh, and that evolves over time. And then, you know, hopefully companies build a great product and, and find you know, product market fit and, 
start to generate revenue and are on their way to, to raising Series A and Series B and beyond. At that point, we're actually not staying, you know, on boards. We're we like to to take our time and really invest it along with our our, our capital in, in in the very early stages. So we're we're sort of stepping back, but the relationship continues on. And so examples that would be companies like Span, where you know Arch is a founder, Arch Rao, who's the founder of this company, Span IO, which is reinventing the the electrical panel and, and really sort of powering home electrification. We'd led the seed round there and we're on the board and quite involved for the first couple of years. He's built a great set of investors around the company. And we are on the board at this point, but still have a great relationship with with him. And 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 you know, our our hope is that, you know, and what we see is that we're always someone that he can call to check in on something that, you know, he might be thinking through. I mean, as, as you get further along, you know, you have boards, you have you have a little bit different dynamic than in the early days. And so I think founders hopefully view us as a resource that is not leading their next round, is not formally on the board, but is trusted and understands them and their company. And so we want to be available as they start to reach, you know, a more mature state as a company, someone that they can can reach out to anytime they need. That makes sense. That really made a big difference for for me and for Utility API when we got started working with Better Ventures early on. There really was that so much more engagement that really did help, especially as I was a first time founder. So I, I appreciate that approach. It's good to hear that that is your approach as well. So going from the value add, I'm curious what you are looking for in founders. And the reason I ask this is because I would love to have founders know the best way to package themselves and their company so that they tee it up the best they can before meeting with you, for example, or they know that they are the right fit for you so that they aren't wasting their time. They're not wasting your time. That's how I like to kind of queue up these investor interviews as well. So can you talk about what you're looking for in a founder and in a company? Yeah, I think, and it, and it really boils down to what we're looking for in those people because, you know, when you think about again early on, you don't really have a company. I mean, you might have incorporated, but you still are probably just building your first prototype or your first product, and it's probably you and a couple of other people at most when we're starting a conversation. And so it really is about hey, we we want to understand what brought these individuals to this idea. What was it that sort of drove their insight into the opportunity? And what is the vision? What's their understanding and clarity around what they think they need to build? And we're looking at characteristics like, do they have an ability in whatever domain they're operating to build a great product? Do they have product skills and technical skills that will allow them to build a, 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 a superior experience and product to anything else that's out there? Do they have just some of the things that I think are important as you navigate early phases of, of a company's development and, and, and innate ability to attract people to their idea, meaning other employees, investors, partners, customers. That's a skill, right? Mm-hmm. This is there, is there, is there a vision? Is there some charisma? Is there an ability for them to sort of build that ecosystem around their company? And that's something that we think about and look for. So it's the, 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 product capability, technical capability, the ability to pull great people around your idea. I think a self-awareness that leads to learning. So both individually, you know, as a human, 
where you start out as a CEO requires something very different than what you need to be able to do as a company scales. And so is there an awareness of what you are really strong, where you're really strong and where you need to develop and an aptitude for continuing to sort of compound your growth faster than, than the role requires and the company requires. And so part of that is learning and that's at the individual level, but it's also learning at a company level because you have an idea at the beginning and you need to test that in the market. By definition, you, you haven't found product market fit. And what you start out with is your original concept might in fact have some real fundamental flaws into your thesis. And so (laughs) the only way that you navigate that is if you're very open to, you know, to, to, to hearing feedback from the market, not from investors, from the market, from customers or prospects or, you know, prospective partners, and then incorporating that and, and, and changing direction where you have to. And that, that's a, a process that almost all founders go through. And so we're looking at that, you know, as we get to know people and, and sort of push them on things, the flexibility in their thinking, we want them to be anchored on their mission and we want them to have a strong point of view, but we want them to have an, we look for an awareness of what they don't understand and understanding of how they'll go and discover or, 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 or validate mm-hmm. what they haven't yet proven. And an ability then to continue to, to sort of be nimble along, along the course of building the product and the business. Because that's the advantage you have as a startup is, is look, you can actually move more quickly than anyone else. And so if there's an opportunity that you have an insight into, then one of the real advantages you have is that, is that ability to, to incorporate a rapid learning cycle into your product development and your go to market and all the things you need to do on the way to success. Absolutely. It's uh, a moving target to go from founder to 10 people to 50 to 250. Those are all different hats and you have to be ready for that evolution. Certainly understandable. And you talked about the technology or the product side of things. That can mean so many different things between software and hardware could you talk about how you think about that when you're investing and your mix of investments in hardware and software for climate tech? So we are agnostic to technology. We've invested in companies that are using synthetic biology or companies that are hardware companies or companies that are you know, just pure software businesses or even you know, business model innovations. We think of each of those as sort of, you know, those are tools in the toolbox. And the key thing is how, how good is that carpenter wielding that particular tool or how good is that tradesperson sort of putting that tool to work in, in building a product. And so within our portfolio, roughly half the companies are what people broadly describe, I would say, as hard tech, meaning more on the, on, on the Symbio or, or, or hardware side of things. And I would say half are more pure software or, or business model innovations. Hmm. We pay some attention to that as we're, as we're making investments over the course of a fund, but it's not like we have a hard target. That's just sort of how it's, you know, how it's worked out. And so I think one of the differences clearly is how you think about the capital requirements at different stages of the journey as a founder. And if you're building in hard tech, oftentimes, obviously the, the development cycles are longer. Capital requirements can be higher. You know, time to actually showing that you have a business and, and are generating revenue is often longer. There are value creation points and, and real, real kind of proof points along the way in advance of, of revenue in many of those businesses. And so what we're trying to do up front with, with, with teams is just have an understanding of, are we 
raising enough capital at this point to give the company the best chance of success in getting through that next value creation milestone. Do we have a clear view on where we think we need to be? And, and have we, you know, have we, have we put enough capital and enough time into our budget to, to, to really be able to nail it? And so what that is tends to look just a little bit different oftentimes than, you know, companies that are purely software companies. And conversely, you know, if we're looking at companies that are purely software, by the way, if, if you were just a software company, you should be able to have some prototype, some demo product up and running very quickly that you can share with us and that gives us insight into what that product ultimately might look like or, you know, what your capabilities are in terms of you know, delivering the product. I think that's harder when you're working with, with hard tech than it is with software. We have like two ends of the spectrum. We, we have an investment in a company called Synop, which is software for managing charging and operation of EV fleets. And we met this company three months after they'd incorporated and started, and they already had a software product. And part of our diligence was actually introducing them to a couple of prospective customers that we knew uh, who they then went on to win the account and, and, and be able to serve. And this is within months of, of getting started. And so that's at one end of the spectrum. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, we have an investment in a company called Eximer, which is an inertial fusion company. So this is a company that is a, a very long, you know, long development cycle and will require a lot of capital. But there are also very clear value creation points along the way. For example, that company this spring received a $9 million award from the Department of Energy, which is a meaningful, meaningful award on, on you know, uh, uh, for a company that's, that's only 18 months old. And so what we're looking for in each case is just that the founders have a realistic and thoughtful approach to, you know, how they bring in capital. Absolutely. And thanks for bringing up the, the non-dilutive capital from Department of Energy. Climate tech does have a lot of opportunity from governments for non-dilutive capital. And how do you think about that as a complementary source of capital for the company? Or do you kind of expect a hardware company to go after that type of capital? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, obviously, in the past year with the Inflation Reduction Act, as is, is, is that was passed and, and now is in the process of being implemented, is it can be a huge tailwind and you would be foolish not to try and identify the opportunities to get either loan funding or rebates on your hardware product. Um, I think it's going to be a huge, or tax credits, I think it's going to be a huge accelerant. But again, it depends on the stage of your business. And early on, it's often still fairly difficult to get some of government funding. Early on, most companies have access to perhaps a little bit of SBIR funding, some SBIR grants through DOE, through NSF, through DOD mm-hmm. that the, the companies often apply for. That between the phase one and phase two can be, you know, a million and a quarter, a million and a half dollars, which is which can be really meaningful. Oftentimes, companies may look at RPE as a source of funding. The dollars available through RPE's programs can be a bit more. For many companies, you don't actually unless you're working in an area like nuclear fusion or an area that has a lot of you know targeted interests already defined by by for example DOE oftentimes the loan dollars and tax credits aren't things you can truly take advantage of until you're a bit farther along in terms of either being able to build that manufacturing 
or being able to have product and market that you're selling. And so, yeah, at the pre-seed or seed stage, it can be a little bit more difficult sometimes to, to, to capitalize on some of those programs that are really meant to help companies scale into a market or, 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 or to establish, you know, manufacturing capabilities once they've already validated their technology. I think it's important for founders to hear, like, don't chase after a $9 million grant if you're not really ready to exercise that or you don't have the resources in place to actually build that or capitalize on that. What are some of those tipping points where a company can say, I want to get to this point and then I like I know I'm ready to go with these types of programs, especially with like those bigger ticket ones or ones that may take a little bit more time and effort to execute. Yeah. So, so the bigger ticket ones, like the one I described in, in Fusion, I mean, that, that was a defined program that the, the DOE had created. And so it, it was something that you know, anyone could apply for, you know, even if you're well, you know, really like, for example, the two biggest winners in that grant were, I think, Exomer and Commonwealth Fusion. Commonwealth is obviously raised quite a bit of capital and, 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 and is, you know, farther along than most of the other companies in the fusion space. But you know, those sorts of programs are not what most seed stage or early stage startups have access to because they are really set up where there is a significant capital intensity. And, and I'd say most of the things that we're investing in are more not project or manufacturing driven companies. They're companies that are that are looking at how they can get some grant funding once they've validated that they have a product that works. Hmm. And so maybe there is manufacturing scale up after you've already built your prototype, after you've already you know, generated some early commercial success, then there's an opportunity. An example would be like in Span's case, right? Mm-hmm. With their electrical panel and their EVSE, their, 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 their electric vehicle charging system, there's absolutely rebates available for installing those. But yeah, this is a company that is already, you know, delivered thousands of units to thousands of homes. And so it wasn't dollars that they could capitalize on at that first stage of their journey before they'd built their first panel and, and being and gotten it certified and, and taken it to market. Yeah. And and so that I think is the distinction, right? Is is oftentimes you have to build something and show how it works before you unlock some of those either larger incentives or or, or larger loan guarantees. Yeah. And can you give a little bit of an indication of when, like using Span as an example, if that means you get to a product, okay, generally that's after, for so for a hardware product, that's after X amount of capital. And at that point, you have X number of people, you know, is that at 20 people? Is that after X amount of funding? Is there something, some guidelines that you kind of see or you have seen in your portfolio companies? In terms of when you're ready for non-dilutive sources, yeah, of capital, yeah, like some like scaling with the manufacturing, those types of programs. It's, it's hard, just like climate is is a term that's applied across industries. You know, sources of non-dilutive capital are are available, you know, uniquely in different areas, and so it really is something that I don't have a universal rule of thumb. All good. I, I yeah, I think yeah, you just you just need. I think I look. I would say it is smart to be. Thinking about, but not totally reliant on those sources of funding. Totally. I think, yeah, because of the time cycles and winning those awards and uncertainty, you want to build a business, you hopefully are not 100% path dependent upon unlocking that. 
but you should absolutely be thoughtful about it. And there's enough dollars available in the form of incentives that that it can really be a nice accelerant when the time is right and you align with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing to see the the companies from 10, 15 years ago continuing to grow and and thrive and, and have persevered through these ups and downs. Can you talk about some of those cycles? And almost, I think there's probably more perseverance in the climate tech space because it is for something broader, you know, something for the world that people find a way to really hold on to it and keep going in the face of adversity. Can you talk through some of those cycles and when you've seen those companies make it through a valley and into the next uh, next round of growth and opportunity? You're spot on that that folks who are working in the climate space, there there's a certain resilience and perseverance because they are trying to build a, a successful company, but the, the 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 reason or the mission behind that company has a much deeper meaning to most founders and and it also actually is very beneficial to to the teams you're trying to recruit so i think that having that mission gives you a certain toughness because it gives you this purpose that you're working towards and it gives you a, an advantage in aligning you know with other great talent who can help you in that in that path there are a lot of ups and downs along the way i think one of the things we're seeing right now you know, for example, in the market is, is that, yeah, that it can take time to build these companies. And that this is something that if you, if you look at, you know, some of the, I already mentioned big winners from a decade ago that are now really significant companies, they've been at this for a decade plus. In some cases, investors and, and even founders are able to, to, to have some liquidity along the way. But like I mentioned before, you know, t- Tesla and phase all went through you know, significant valleys at Trove, like I'd mentioned, we went through, you know, complete pivot in our business in, into the new business, you know, in the, in the current portfolio have, you know, companies that are all working through some of their own, you know, pivots in terms of product or, or even the market segment they're going after. And you get these moments of, of acceleration, like we got with Ira passing last year. And then, you know, you hit also moments like you have, for example, in the in the electric vehicle space over the past, you know, over the past year where there was an enormous amount of enthusiasm and the companies that went out and, you know, and SPACs and, and, and now a lot of those companies are struggling and some of the highest flyers, for example, Proterra, unfortunately just, you know, went through a, a bankruptcy, was going through a bankruptcy. So you have, you do have these peaks and valleys. And I think it's just, it's just a reminder to sort of, it, to, to, to be humble about, the fact that even though you can be getting a lot of headlines and a lot of attention, your mission is to build a sustainable you know, business at scale. And, uh, and that's, that's really hard. And I think, it, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I guess I, I recognize from, from having done this for, for, for 15 years, 17 years in this space is that there's actually a fairly low correlation between the hype that companies have around raising a new round or, social media, or even oftentimes the broad perception around, hey, which companies are going to be the winner or which companies are doing really well, and the reality. I think that for founders and investors, it's really important to stay focused on the high quality signals in a sea of noise that's out there. And when you go through these peaks and valleys, I think what you find is oftentimes some of the companies that people perceived as 
being really successful or, you know, having, you know, having kind of a market leadership role run into challenges. And I think if, if, if folks, if investors, if founders, if teams get too caught up in, 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 in sort of that, that hype cycle, I think there's a real risk that they lose sight of the fundamentals that they need to build into their business as they grow. That makes sense. And it is a very interesting market right now, as you mentioned, with just like lots of change and different headwinds happening for the space. Can you talk about what you're seeing right now in the market and how you're thinking about it as an investor and how you're seeing your portfolio companies adapt to it? Yeah. So I would say that the past, let's say, three or four years, we've seen this enormous influx of capital and interest in climate tech, which is amazing. And I'm, I'm thrilled to see. It led to a market that was very momentum driven, broadly, even within tech, you know, we were at the tail end of a 10 year bull market. And so all of these things came together. And I think there was a, a huge number of businesses funded and a lot of new capital investing in climate. And I think that what you began to see in, in, in the general tech space in early 2022 was a, a reset on valuations as the economy started to cool, as inflation started to tick off, interest rates were being raised. You saw a reset in public valuations that pretty rapidly began to filter through, you know, SaaS companies and more traditional generalist tech startup ecosystems. That didn't hit as quickly last year in climate. And I think that perhaps because we had the IRA pass, it all of a sudden we have created this additional tailwind mm. um, of interest and, and even interest from, from generalist investors, which I think maybe prolonged a bit of that, you know, sort of bull market or momentum driven market. Mm-hmm. 2023 has been different, you know, as, as rates continue to rise, as we all dealt with the, the banking fallout, obviously a lot of companies that we've discussed in climate are reliant on credit, are reliant on project financing. And, and, and say, so as you have a higher interest rate environment, as you have the economy, you know, just reset to a more normalized place, you've seen the same effect that we've seen broadly in the same cooling that we've seen broadly across the venture space, not surprisingly, yeah, begin to hit climate tech. And, and that's a normal thing. I mean, what we were doing for two years, I think that the pacing and the amount of capital and the valuations were a little bit overheated relative to the reality of how long it takes to create value, fundamental business value in a company. And so I think what's happened this year, I've seen there is a slower pace of deployment than there had been. That's been well documented, but that there's a slowing overall of dollars and number of investments. I'm still very excited. I see we see, we're seeing a lot of incredible founders who are starting new businesses in the space, but overall we're at a bit of a different cycle than we were than we were you know for the past few years, which I think is a good thing actually over over you know over the long term but it's an adjustment currently and and there's a lot of extension rounds mm-hmm. that are being funded we see you know some companies in our portfolio that have said hey let's take this opportunity to shore up our balance sheet the conversation we began having with teams last year and in many cases folks went back out and raised some additional capital from existing and or new new investors just realizing that 
we're in a place where the threshold for raising the next round is higher. And so I think people recalibrated their plans and made sure that they had balance sheets that could fit into the to the new environment. Makes sense. Thank you. I, I think it's important for people to hear kind of that environment and also recognizing that there are those ebbs and flows. And that's something you need to plan for as an entrepreneur and as investors as well. You know, when it comes to raising that next fund, market timing matters. So interesting. You want to raise when your business is ready to raise. I mean, I think that for a period of time, people were just assuming they would raise every you know nine to 12 months or, or because they could. There was enough interest and momentum in the space that it was almost detached a little bit from, mm. you know, in some cases, real you know, company milestones. And so why wouldn't you, you know, try to go faster and take in more capital when it was cheap and available? And I think what's happening now, there's still a lot of capital. There's still an enormous opportunity. In fact, I would still argue that the amount of capital in climate is small relative to the market opportunity. And so the the kind of longer term outlook is still incredibly positive. But I think if you're building a business, you're looking at, you know, the fact that I can't assume that I'm just going to be able to raise the next round in nine to 12 months. And you have to take a clear look at what you've de-risked in a company and what you've been able to validate about your thesis that's going to attract that next set of investors. And increasingly at a Series A and Series B, yeah, those those stage investors are looking for signs that there's a compelling business, not just, you know, you, you my my partner Harsh sort of says, Hey, you raise your your, you know, your seed round on PowerPoint and your your Series A on Excel. And and that for a while sort of had, I think, gone away. And you were raising, you know, subsequent rounds on on their narrative mm-hmm. as opposed to on performance and numbers. And I think that's shifting back a bit. Yeah, it's a it's a reduction of the frothiness in the market and it's coming back to some of the basic fundamentals of building an actual business. I think something that's also really special about the climate tech environment is the ecosystem. There's the government funds that are available, but also there's a lot of specialized accelerators and communities that are supporting this ecosystem. Can you talk about some of the different actors in there that that you feel are valuable to the community and the different ones that you like to work with or what you like to see when a company is in the space? You know, are there certain accelerators that you you love sourcing deals from, for example? Talk about that a little bit. We don't have, I would say, any favorites. I mean, we have we have invested in companies that have been through, you know, through IndieBio and through Greentown Labs and through Activate. And I think they're each different in, in their own way. And I think they're all, they, they can be good resources for founders. So I, I, there's, yeah, we've actually invested in companies that have then, you know, gone on to participate in you know third derivative or elemental and and so i think i i i view the fact that there's this expansion of resources to founders as a terrific thing but i wouldn't say that we've sort of identified you know one or two and said hey that's where we really you know want to exclusively source from we try to 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 stay close to all of them but i think it's important that what you said was that there's an ecosystem and i think that it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier there there is an ecosystem of support and capital that is increasingly there for founders, which has not always been the case, you know, for founders working climate, which has not always been the case. And so I think, 
yeah, you always need to make the the decision around is is whatever you can get from a, a coaching or a capital standpoint, you know, worth the time from a particular group. And often it ends up being a question of, you know, who is it that you're paired up with, and 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 what is it that they can actually help you achieve. And and I think that some companies don't go through any accelerators, and some decide to go through through multiple accelerators. It's it's there's not any any sort of hard and fast rules that I've seen around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like some people view it almost like going to college in terms of putting their company idea through a process and system to make it more robust to do those that have a little bit more of a structure for customer discovery and developing that narrative, all of those types of things. And it really does depend on the program. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 And I think sometimes it can be a little bit of a, it, it, it can, it can help you stand out a bit because, you know, it's a natural place where investors are spending time or have relationships. So it's a way, if you don't have a lot of existing relationships with folks in venture, a way to, to, to start a conversation with, with investors, it is a way to start to get on people's radar. In addition to that, just to be part of a smaller group of companies that's being highlighted for early, early investors. We also oftentimes will back people coming out of companies directly who have a new idea. We will back people who have, you know, have not gone through an accelerator. And so I think that it, it depends on what stage you're, you know, who you're raising money from. But I think that increasingly you mentioned you had Tommy on. We, we take a similar approach. We want to, to meet people oftentimes before they've even, you know, gone through an accelerator program and we're happy to to write a, you know, an early check at that point before, you know, when, when it's just an idea mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, before you've even recruited anyone around that idea. Yeah. Since we are on the topic of ideas, are there any climate ideas or possible like companies or businesses where you want to see more companies in that particular climate space? Because we're so people driven, we, 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 we don't have a market map where we say we need to find someone doing X or Y. We actually want to be really led by the founders mm-hmm. and wh- what they, you know, wh- what they open up to us as, as a potential opportunity. And I think we, because of that, you know, are very, are very driven by, by, by the teams. So no, we don't, we don't, we don't take a sort of a, you know, a market mm-hmm. map based approach and then, and then go try to find someone. Who's, who's doing a particular idea that we want to see. Yeah. You say that. However, I am curious about your take on, on climate and AI. There's so much happening with AI. What is that intersection of opportunity? <laughs> yeah. There's so much capital. I just want more of that capital in climate. How can we use AI to make the world a better place for climate? I know. I know. I, well, I, I think... Yeah, again, that's like that is a tool, right? So, so if you if you have expertise in in AI and you have insight into how to apply the climate, I think there's going to be there's going to be extraordinary opportunities. We we have several companies in our portfolio. Some of them are doing you know new weather forecasting models. Some of them are are looking at how you bid energy resources into the grid. There's a number of different places to apply that that tech stack, the AI tech stack, but. And, and and so we're 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 excited about the potential of AI to help move the needle on climate. And I think there there is an intersection. But just like I said before, you know, there there's there's also, for example, 
what, what's happened in synthetic biology over the past decade, you've seen a set of tools or a tech stack that was mostly in the past applied to human health mm. begun to be applied to, to new materials and to food and ag. And so it's, it is, in our view, another, another, you know, set of technologies that great founders can use in building their product. And I think it's important again, also not to sort of be too, focused on what that tool is as much as what's the insight of a team and how do they put it to use. And I think we saw, you know, for a couple of years, you know, crypto was right. such a hot area and everyone wanted to invest in it. And people thought, well, man, if I could only get the dollars that are being raised by crypto companies, and you saw a lot of people say, hey, we've got a we've got a token that's going to help, you know, with with climate. And and and, and there may be applications of blockchain and crypto and climate. But a lot of the things that we ended up seeing felt like they were more enamored with the technology than in a real understanding of how to put it to use towards a solution that could scale and solve a significant problem. So that's where we're focused. Where, where can you apply AI in a way that you have some strong native capability that is going to allow you to solve a significant problem around climate? Yeah. And it seems like you need that right blend or that right person that has some expertise in both and can start to bring that idea into fruition and bring the right people on to have that balance. And I feel like it's we've just had that big froth around AI and it is very exciting. <laughs> and we'll see we'll see how it does get applied to climate. <laughs> we'll say that. Cool. Well, we are Absolutely. approaching time here. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? The only thing I would say is that we're, we love meeting people who have an interest in, in climate, whether you're thinking about beginning to invest in the space and making seed investments. We, we love working with, with, with high quality angels that want to be part of syndicates with us. We love to, to, to work with folks. We have an active relationship, for example, with Climate Draft, which is helping really find people in generalist tech who want to navigate and find a path into climate. And so if you're thinking about doing work in climate, but maybe don't quite know how to apply your skill set, we'd love to have a conversation, figure out how we can give you some suggestions and, and think through that. I think the other the other obvious thing is if you're a founder who's building a company, you know, we we are always we, we have an open submission on our website. We've actually backed companies that have come in completely cold. We always prefer it's always easier. I think you just frankly do get a, a quicker response generally when. There is an introduction, but but we will we get to everything that comes in through the website, and and we will we will definitely look closely at those opportunities as well. So perfect. Well, I hope more companies are coming your way too. And this was a really wonderful conversation, Paul. I I greatly appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Elena. I really appreciate the invitation. It's great great catching up with you again. Thank you for joining me. By gaining this knowledge, you are now a climate avenger. As we all know, knowledge is power. So avenge the climate with us. Let's get the word out. Rate, review, subscribe so others can find this podcast. We are new, so every share is even more important. Help us grow and share it with the communities that you're a member of, whether it's climate or investing Slack groups, LinkedIn groups. And if you don't mind, share it with a friend or colleague so they can also join us in avenging the climate especially if they work in climate, are a climate entrepreneur or an angel investor. If you are an accredited investor, join our rolling fund and syndicate on AngelList. 
If you have questions or want to talk with us, email team at climateavengers.com and Kyle or I will respond. Put your money where your values are. Make money and save the world at the same time. Let's get more capital into climate. To find out more about Climate Avengers, head over to resourcelabs.co slash climateavengers and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes and resources. Until next time, avenge on.